1: The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free.
0: This is the Roy Green Show podcast. I don't like it when people get involved in other people's business, when it's none of their concern. And I'm speaking of what happened to Anita Prantera of St. Catharines, Ontario. She's 29 years of age. She has multiple sclerosis which qualifies anita for a handicapped parking permit but it isn't immediately obvious that she needs the permit when she gets out of her car at least not all the time and so well-meaning busybodies butt in And I understand you see somebody get out of a vehicle, they park in a handicapped space, and they appear to be perfectly fine, and it makes you angry. And so you decide to do something about it, and you write a note, and you put it on the windshield. And you feel like you've done your civic duty. Well, in this case, whoever did it to Anita did not do their civic duty. In fact... They insulted her, and they caused. I would imagine, Anita. Thank you for taking the time to, uh, to talk to us. Please tell me what what's your emotional reaction. We'll back up and and talk about your your about your health and 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 what happened. But as you lifted that note off the windshield of your car and you saw the note that was reprimanding you for having parked in the handicapped space, what was your immediate reaction to that?
2: Shock. Sure and then i started reading the note and when i heard read the note saying that i was lazy that's when i became very emotional because i hate that word that's not a nice word
0: <laughs> do you have the uh, do you still have the note
2: yeah i do i did i found it in- my purse and I still have it, and it's going up beside the newspaper article in the little frame, saying "My 15 minutes of shame." My 15 minutes of shame turned into 15 minutes of fame.
0: <laughs> so I'm looking at a photograph. I hope I've got this correct. A handicap permit is meant for handicap people only. You are not handicap. You should be ashamed. Person can't spell. You should be ashamed of yourself for taking a handicap spot simply because you are lazy shame shame So you yeah, get this the right note Yeah so you so you get this note and there's no way that you can respond because the person has simply written the note placed it under your windshield wiper and left
2: Yeah I was more shocked at the fact that that person had seen me walk in. They had ample opportunity to come up and ask if I was legally and legitimately le- using that space. And I would have had no problem discussing my scenario with them if they were interested in listening. And but this... they instead cowered and wrote a, sh- uh, wrote a letter anonymously. And actually, one of the posts online said it perfectly. If you're not willing to sign your name to that note your opinion goes out the window
0: exactly if you're going to if you're going to criticize clearly that person saw you get out of your vehicle clearly mm-hmm. that person assessed the situation as being one where you were fine you didn't need the handicapped space because you looked fine you got out fine you walked away fine and that is the time the person if they're going to cause uh, create a uh, a situation, if they're going to offer comment, that's the time they make the comment and to you face-to-face.
2: Yes, exactly.
0: How often does this happen to you?
2: Not often. It's, it's, seldomly happens but when it does it's never been a letter left an anonymous note like that it's always been somebody up to my face asking personally and it's more of a discussion that takes place i never you know go irate or if an irate person approaches me i stand there and wait to diffuse the situation but it's seldom but it shouldn't happen at all and
0: that's that's
2: the case here is it needs to stop people need to realize that not every disability is visible. You have things like Crohn's disease, um, lupus, Lou Gehrig. So, like, all these things slowly progress, but they're not visible every day and every moment. But I could be looking fine walking into the mall. I might not look fine walking out of the mall. And that's, that's the problem there.
0: So, tell us, please, what the symptoms of multiple sclerosis can be.
2: Well, it can be um, weakness, um, fatigue, so constantly tired, um, numbness, uh, pain, um, involuntary muscle spasms. You can have paralyzation from it. It's a snowflake disease, so not one MS patient is the same as another MS patient because it all depends on where the scar tissue has happened throughout the progression of the disease itself.
0: So you could be reasonably mobile walking reasonably normally um at five minutes past the hour and by 20 past the hour the condition could cause for you a situation where nobody would question why you parked in a handicapped space because you'd be walking in a manner that the multiple sclerosis forces you to walk at that particular time
2: yeah yeah it's definitely an unpredictable one too that's for sure
0: you said uh, a couple of minutes ago that that you have been confronted by irate people not often but it has happened mm-hmm. what do these people say to you do they ever ask do they ask if you if you have a condition that no, requires those are, the
2: people, those are the people that assume that i'm using my grandmother's tag or that i've illegally purchased one and just they go off, but in the end, I explain like it is my handicap permit. No, I don't need to show you the back of it. Uh, that would be something an officer would do. And if you do feel like I'm abusing it, I'm more than willing to stand and wait for a police officer to come and check for you. you. you, you By you, you, that point, you're offering to show them pretty much, and they leave you alone.
0: But, you don't need to do that.
2: No, and you don't nobody need to,
0: need do, to that. do that. The we people assume the worst? They assume the worst. I, I can only imagine how you feel because you're you're living with the with the condition with the with the uh, with the illness with the disease. That's enough of a challenge to live with. You're just 29 years of age. You're a young person. You have your life ahead of you. You're going to have to battle this challenge, um, mm-hmm. and and you're willing to do that. And you were given a handy you were assigned a handicapped parking permit because you need it. And so to the people who. Who, and to that person, I, I, you know, it's quite possible the person listening, the person who wrote the note, would be listening. I, I have a question for that person. Who appointed you guardian of handicapped parking? So my word to you is butt out. You have no idea what a person's health challenge may or may not be. If you want the job of a bylaw officer, apply for it. Otherwise, keep your pencil and self-righteous notes to yourself.
2: Mm-hmm. For sure. I agree with you 100%. I just don't want anybody else to have that happen to them again. That's why I was so happy that it did go viral the way it is so that we see the response of the general public does understand that there is invisibility, invisible disabilities out there and we're willing to repost and stick up for someone they didn't even know. So in the end, I look at it as a big positive in my life because it made me be able to be a spokesperson for so many other people out there that are scared to get their handicap permit because they don't want to be shamed the way that I was supposed to be shamed.
0: May I read a few lines from the uh, Sun News article? Sure. Uh, I, I I want you people to listen to this, please. Those of you who are instantly ready to write an editorial note and leave it on the windshield of someone you assume should not be parking in a handicapped space. The story says the most frustrating thing for Anita was the use of the word Lazy. Quote, if I were lazy, I'd have been put in a wheelchair three years ago and had given up. Instead, I went to the Hotel Dieu Shaver. I had intense physiotherapy. I taught myself how to walk and think again. The disease has affected every aspect of Anita's life. She had to sell her investment at the pizzeria she owned with her sister because she was not able to work in the heat. She switched careers altogether from culinary to retail. The note came a day before her first shift at Walmart. This isn't the first time Anita has had this problem. She had a similar experience outside Foodland in Thorold. That's in Ontario. I was getting into my car and an older gentleman parked next to the handicapped parking spot started yelling at me about how I'm using my grandma's parking permit and I should be ashamed of myself. She said, luckily a uniformed police officer was able to defuse the situation. And so here you are. You've battled, and you battled that illness, and mm-hmm. you you battled it hard, and, and, I, and my hat's off to you.
2: Yeah. I guess, I guess I did a very good job fighting my illness, because I apparently don't look handicapped anymore. No. <laughs> I take it as a compliment, because if they had seen me two years ago, there would have been no question.
0: <laughs> Three years ago, you could have given up
2: and I didn't because I have so much more to give to the world in walking straight. And I'm not saying anybody who's in a wheelchair from MS has given up in that sense either because like I said, every situation is different with every patient. Just with mine, we did have the possibility of sending me to rehabilitate those muscles that were starting to deteriorate.
0: I just wanted to talk to you today. I wanted people to hear your voice on this program. I want people to know what your situation is, that you're a battler, that you're a fighter, that you're not giving up, that you've had opportunity to, uh, to just let the disease take over your life, and you've decided, no, you had to make major changes in the rest of your life uh, with the multiple sclerosis, but, but you're, you're fighting it, and, and you're doing amazingly well. So, Anita, well done, and thank you for taking the time to join us, and we're all on your side. Awesome. Thank you very much. You have a great day, Roy. You you too. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Anita Prantera from St. Catharines, Ontario. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on
1: AM 900 CHML.
0: Now, the vast majority of cops are great men and women. They put themselves in the line of fire, literally. You've heard it many times, but it's true. When the 911 call is made, they rush toward the danger while everybody else is rushing away. So we have tremendous respect for police. We must have. They're special people. Who else puts themselves in between you and danger daily? Very few people go to work knowing that they may not come home that night as part of the job. It's a tough job. And there are bad cops. But there are also idiots marching along the street, keeping each other company with their dangerous, moronic chant, what do we want, dead cops? What do we want it now? And who's riding shotgun on them, no pun intended? Who's walking alongside them, providing some level of protection, also keeping the situation reasonably under control? Police officers. I tweeted earlier, just ignore them. Let them get lost wherever they go. So we're going to be talking about that um, later on in the show today, this hour actually. We'll have Scott Newark joining us, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association, former crown attorney in, uh, in Alberta. And we'll ask you some questions too, uh, to call in on. But we also had the situation this week where Toronto Constable James Forcillo, were sentenced to six years in prison for the shooting of 18-year-old Samia Yatim on a streetcar. And Farsilla was sentenced to six years in prison for attempted murder after being found not guilty of second-degree murder. And it raised a lot of questions, and for some people those questions still remain. David Butt joins me, former Crown Attorney, now criminal defense lawyer in Toronto, one of the best in the country, who just wrote an op-ed piece in the Globe and Mail headlined, How to Select a Supreme Court Judge. David, it's good to have you, uh, have you back with us. Would you please ex- explain to us w- how it is that you can have, and let's go back to the beginning here, how can you have an attempt murder charge for Officer Forcillo after he was found not guilty of second-degree murder? How does that happen?
1: It's a very unique situation, Roy. It does not happen uh, often, and uh, it's a little bit complicated. But here's the theory, and it appears that the jury accepted this theory. There were two volleys of shots that Constable Farcillo fired. They were separated by a very short period of time. But it appears the jury reasoned as follows. The first volley of shots, during which Sammy, a team, so the jury seems to have found, posed a lethal threat because he had the knife and, and it was a lethal threat that he may use it. So the jury reasoned that in the first volley of shots, Constable Fursillo, was justified in discharging his firearm. Those shots, we know from the pathologists, were the ones that actually caused the fatal wounds. So the first set of shots that actually killed Mr. Yatim were justifiable. The jury acquitted of murder for that reason. The jury went on to reason, however, that the second volley of shots was unnecessary because Mr. Yatim no longer posed a threat. So it was those second that second volley of shots that appears to be the foundation for the attempt murder conviction. a right. so very unique situation, a little bit complicated, but there you have it.
0: Yeah. It's unusual to have an yes, attempt murder charge laid after the the actual murder charge is, is dismissed by the jury. So so, yes, and,
1: and both charges were laid initially at the very beginning of the case. Right. So the charge wasn't laid after the acquittal of, for murder. They're both laid at the beginning, and the jury had to pick and choose what they would uh, do with each charge.
0: So if you're the judge, and you have to now have to make a decision on a prison sentence um, for, the, for the individual, how complicated is that for the judge, or is it not complicated at all?
1: No, it's extremely complicated, Roy. There's uh, a, a whole bunch of uh, things that a judge has to think about and balance and weigh. And we start with the, the basic proposition that these things the judge has to think about and balance and weigh are are things that really can't be measured. So we've got the grief of the uh, the victim's family, the deceased family. How do you measure that in years in jail? It's impossible. You can't. You've got the need to uh, denounce criminal conduct of course we all agree you have to be harsh with criminals but what's the number that that equals the right degree of harshness you can't say it with precision uh, constable Forcillo, in many respects was in a very sympathetic situation as you said in your opening you know he was one of those officers responding to a dangerous situation he was running towards it not running away and you know it's uh, accepting the jury's verdict for what it is it was an error in judgment in a split second There's a lot of sympathy there too what's the number that corresponds to the degree of sympathy you can't put numbers on any of these things so the judge really has a very very tough choice of trying to represent these things in a number when they really can't be so what it is it's the best approximation that any human being can do
0: in a situation like that is this uh, a verdict that is prime for um an appeal yes it's for, for a number of reasons
1: first of all uh, it's, it's a very impactful verdict for both uh, obviously the, uh, the tragedy of the loss of mystery a team and for the fact that in a very rare situation in Canada we get a police officer being sentenced to a relatively long prison sentence so it's a very rare verdict and and for that reason it's a good idea to take it to the higher court, to review it, just to make sure everything uh, unfolded correctly at trial. But the other reason is this. The defense is mounting an argument, and it's a thoughtful argument, that really it's, it's artificial to segment those two volleys of shots into two different events and acquit him for the first volley and convict him for the second one, when what was really going on was one continuous transaction. So that's the defense argument. It's one that the appeal court should take a serious look at. It's one that's worthy of serious consideration. I can't say if it's automatically a winner or not, but it is certainly the kind of argument that should be heard by an appeal court.
0: Dave, there's a a lot being said about what message is being sent to police by the semi Yatim verdict, and then brought into the discussion I've heard several times in private conversations um, and and in public conversations, the the Baltimore situation with Freddie Gray, the officers taken to trial were found not guilty, officers charged with murder, second degree I think it was. Other officers had their charges dismissed by an obviously unhappy prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, earlier in the week. Now mm-hmm. five police officers are suing Mosby in court. And in San Diego, a police officer was shot and killed on Friday morning. There's a war on cops. You're a former prosecutor, you're a a criminal defense lawyer. How how do you put all of this together? Yeah, I I think it's
1: really important uh, to take each one of those cases and consider them individually on their own merit and not to get uh, inflamed with uh, angry conclusions one way or the other. Um, in other words, the police community, I would urge them not to jump to conclusions, say, well, everybody out there hates us and uh, um, go, r- retreat to a bunker mentality. And on the other hand, I would encourage people, uh, civilians, not part of the police officer community, again, not to lump all these together and say, all cops are bad and they're terrible and we got to get rid of them or, you know, even worse. Uh, each case really has to be carefully looked at on, his own, on its own facts. and. Uh, the bottom line is, as as you again said in your opening, you know, are, are there some cops who go over the line sometimes? Absolutely. And do we have to look very carefully at those cases and uh, and uh, meet out appropriate penalties? Yes, we do. But are we justified in uh, judging one cop and then extrapolating that to everyone and and you know fomenting anger against police officers generally? No, that's irresponsible too. So it's very much a matter of taking each case calmly rationally looking at what actually happened and drawing judgments on individual cases.
0: Yeah. Now, many times in this country and recently, I think more than more than um, in in, uh, in in the last 20 years, let's say in the last 3 or 4 years, there have been cases that have made their way to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court has made more news, is what I'm trying to say, in the last few years than it has in a long time, I think. There've been there've been cases which have really generated a, a lot of public discussion and there's been a lot of talk about who is who makes up the supreme court of canada who are these who are these judges who are these men and women in, in the uh, in the red robes i think they wear red robes um yeah. the, the, they started out as lawyers and they were apparently good lawyers but they were also appointed to the courts they eventually supervised or took, took, uh, took control of and, and they moved up the ladder, as it were, uh, being appointed again by prime ministers. And then eventually, a few of them, a very few, make it to the Supreme Court of Canada, which has the power and most recently has frequently, it seems, overruled parliament, overruled the process, the parliamentary process, where a bill is brought before the men and women who are elected to, uh, to manage our affairs. It, it passes three readings. It then goes to the Senate, and it's affirmed by the Senate. It becomes law. And a little while later, or a period of time later, it's challenged in court, and it goes all the way to the Supreme Court of Canada. And the Supreme Court says, no, this law isn't valid. It doesn't meet whatever test it should. Rewrite the law. We saw it on the, uh, the uh, physician-assisted-to-death law. We saw it in prostitution legislation. You just wrote a column in the, uh, in the Globe and Mail, on how to select a supreme court judge It's fascinating would you stay with us and talk to us about that absolutely there's no way you can say no after that introduction <laughs> no nope, be glad to. All right. you're listening to the Roy Green show weekends from 2
1: to 5 on AM
0: 900 CHML we're talking about police we're talking about laws we're talking about um, putting all of this together it's a complex reality in this country and uh, we have parliament that creates law. We have judges that interpret. Well, yeah, they do interpret law, and they pass sentencing, as happened with the Samia team, this, not Samia team, with uh, James Forcillo um, this week. David Butt is my guest, former crown attorney, a criminal uh, defense lawyer in Toronto, and now. And uh, David often writes for the Globe and Mail, and he has a, um, an op-ed piece in the paper today How to Select a Supreme Court Judge. I just want to read a couple of lines at the beginning of this. Supreme Court judges are central players in Canadian democratic governance. When they interpret our Charter of Rights, the judges create the social world we live in. Their work has as much impact as MPs passing legislation, but judges are unelected, albeit for good reasons. So if we are to respect the democratic values when selecting judges who so profoundly shape our community, the selection process must involve the people carry on mr bud please it's fascinating
1: thank you uh, roy yeah it's uh, certainly my view uh, very strongly held that we need to have public involvement in the uh, selection and appointment of, of judges now i'm not talking about voting they elect judges in the states and that has its own problems but when our elected legislators in parliament are choosing supreme court judges there's things the public should know in advance First of all, who's applying and what's their background? And then secondly, when you're making the selection, what criteria are you applying? In other words, why is candidate A going to make it and candidate B not going to make it? You should have criteria because anybody else who applies for a job, there's listed criteria for the job. Here's what you need to qualify. So we should have that publicly known in advance. Furthermore, I say, not only should we have the criteria known in advance, but there should be public hearings where questions are asked directed to those hiring criteria. So if one of them, for example, I say, is ability to write well, what writing products have you produced? How clear are they? How understandable are they? Can the general public who has to follow the laws that you pronounce understand what you're saying? So you need to have these kinds of open hearings, and I say it shouldn't be just politicians per- participating in those open hearings where questions can be asked candidates. There should be a small number. Yeah, it has to be practical, after all. small number of members of the public should be able to participate, a little bit like a town hall. There should be, of course, some experts from the legal community who can ask questions of the judges. So if you had this group of politicians, members of the public, and legal experts all asking questions directed at the qualifications of a Supreme Court uh, nominee, I think you'd have a much more transparent process. You'd have a process that the public could look at and understand. And when the choice is made, people would understand why that person was chosen so that when they later on in their career on the Supreme Court, when they give some far-reaching precedent-setting decision, people will at least know who's making that decision and why they're making it. That way, even though they're unelected, the selection process is much more democratic.
0: As you write in the, in the Globe, the Supreme Court pursues social cohesion by settling some of the toughest and most controversial questions we collectively face by selecting judges in a thoroughly public and inclusive process that applies the above criteria, which you just described, we will create a court that is more ours than ever before and whose answers to our tough questions will best earn our considered respect while standing the test of time. It's it's so well said, David. I have twenty seconds here, because there is a there's a lack of trust in the process, and it includes the Supreme Court of Canada in, in many people's minds. I had this fascinating piece. Thank you so much for uh, for joining us and thanks for explaining it to us. Oh, well, my pleasure,
1: Roy. Anytime.
0: David Butt in Globe and Mail, how to select a Supreme Court judge.
1: You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900
0: CHML. So there was a police sting in um, British Columbia in 2013, RCMP. Because the RCMP had concerns that um, two individuals, John Nuttall and Amanda Corody, um, were planning on carrying out a terrorist attack on the legislature in uh, in British Columbia so now the the judge rule the judges ruled that the police went beyond what they're entitled to do in their anti-terrorism engagements so That, I find that disturbing. I, I I know you can't set somebody up and then just drop them. But Scott Newark would know a lot more about this than I than I do. former crown attorney in Alberta and former executive director of the Canadian Police Association and was an advisor to the federal government of Canada and the Ontario government on terrorism after 9-11. So I want to talk to Scott about that and something else I want to talk to him about. The war on cops had another police officer murdered in San Diego uh, yesterday. And um, there are these, and I've talked about them, these morons, dangerous morons, wandering the streets in, in mobs, screaming, What do we want? Dead cops? When do we want it now? And who's walking alongside them, essentially sort of keeping them in line, but also providing security for them? Police officers. And I was talking to a friend. I haven't said this yet, but I was talking to a friend of the United States who has a good friend who's a cop. And he told me that this good friend of his is getting pressure from his family. This is a police officer who's been in, in the business long enough to qualify for a pension but wasn't ready to leave. But he's getting pressure from his family to quit because of the war on cops because they want dad to come home at night. And they're not so sure that's going to happen now. Scott, when you hear that, that's not an isolated situation, is it?
3: No, and it's um, it's certainly something that appears to be spreading, and I, I think that's among the most worrying things. You and I have been talking uh, criminal justice. So I was thinking about this, Roy, for you know uh, probably around twenty-five years, yep. and I don't ever recall when what you could even generically describe as you know uh, uh, people expressing concerns and outrage and protest over police conduct i don't ever recall it going to this stage of where in effect it's become politicized it's become like a quotation marks political movement and that includes literally calling for violence against those same police officers that to me is unique and it's uh, i think especially disturbing because it's increasingly sophisticated. it's going on I can tell you it's going on in Ottawa today. there is a uh, a, a guy named uh, uh, Abdirahman Abdi who was uh, uh, apprehended by the police and uh, who has died. Um, they don't know exactly what it was or why it was that he is dead, but it has generated similar kinds of protests. I was just watching a video clip, and it's to the point where... Because of the protest, the Ottawa police station is shut down.
0: I knew the protest was taking place, I know his brother has spoken out, and there's concern about what happened to mr. Abdi then when Absolutely. he was in, when he was in police custody and that he died in in police custody, but I didn't know what's been happening today,
3: yeah, although you know the one thing that that has to be kept in mind about all of this um and it, it is legitimate, you know, that people are making complaints about the police conduct and everything. And that, that is a fundamental principle of our system is that we have civilian oversight and that police are held accountable for their actions. That's all entirely appropriate. Right. But this assumption that somehow, you know, um, race is dominating the way police do things. To me, and look, again, that is a legitimate issue to be explored and not to be tolerated in any way whatsoever. But people need to... Always keep in mind that the encounter between the police and the individuals in question, whether it's uh, Sami Yatim or whether it's this uh, Rahman Abdi, the police didn't go looking for a particular person or a person of a particular race. They had the encounter with the individual not because of who they were, but because of what they were doing. And that's something that I think gets gets overlooked in a lot of this, in the analysis somehow that you know this is all some terrible thing, and that the police therefore, it's and it would want, be one thing if it was just you know the police should be held to account, but we we have seen to have been going. I don't think it's reached that point in Canada yet, but it's going to that stage in the United States of and calling for violence against the police because they are police yeah it's very dangerous,
0: well, you know I was uh I talked to you about that Freddie Gray case in Baltimore that created yeah so much um disturbance public disturbance rioting and i will I will tell you scott what what i when I first heard about the Freddie Gray case, I was very concerned about what happened to that young man in that van. It just sounded to me like sounded to me like these cops had been responsible for the death of Freddie Gray it just sounded to me like that, so that was my that was my Im- immediate sort of gut response as the as you found out more about about the case and you found out more about the prosecutor marilyn mosby correct more questions started to be raised and now what's happened is that each officer who has been taken to court and been uh, and then tried including murder charges uh, found not guilty and then on earlier this week all the charges against the other i think it's five three three, three or four officers I, I don't how many
3: six in six. total
0: Six in total. Uh, well, three
3: of whom, by the way, are black.
0: Right. So all the charges were dismissed by Correct. by the very same prosecutor, Marilyn Mosby, who still issued a political statement after dismissing the charges, and now five of the officers are suing her in civil court.
3: Yeah. Well, see that that's part of what I think is is concerning about this is that this is somehow being perceived as a political issue, and people from you know all different kinds of interests are looking at the, what they perceive to be uh, the political interest in taking one position or another. And that's unfortunate because, you know, our tradition in Canada and the United States, of course, is that the police are not a politicized entity. They literally work for, to protect and uh, promote the public safety of all citizens. And to see the, the notion of policing, and that's what I find particularly disturbing in the United States, it's the, it's the very notion of policing that somehow is coming under attack, uh, that's, that's bothersome. And that goes to a larger, I think, a larger political agenda uh, that you touched on as well, too, when they're actually reaching the point of calling for violence and harm against police officers. And, hello, take a look. Guess what? It's actually starting to happen, right, in Baton Rouge and in Dallas, okay? Uh, and there are organizations. The shooter in Dallas apparently had direct links into the new Black Panthers. Um, you, know, you know, Roy, another aspect of, of this that is new that i think it exacerbates this is that we live in a world now where literally everything is on video and you know available to the public within uh, minutes and that that inflames this politicization of everything and that's a reality we're simply going to have to deal with
0: so what, so, uh, what so what I'm really interested in here scott is what's the response from the police. What's the response? I'm not talking about the police brass. I'm not talking about the the management teams at the top, the chief and the deputy chief and the commissioners and the deputy commissioners. I'm talking about the officers on the ground, the cop who goes out on the street, the man, the woman who puts on their, you know, the uniform, puts on the utility belt, gets the gun, gets the badge, goes out to protect society. And if you ever want to find out how messy things can be, be without those people for 24 hours. Correct. I saw it in Montreal when I was in my early 20s. When the police in Montreal walked out, it instantly turned into a free-for-all of madness until the Sûreté de Québec and the army, some elements of the army came in. But the Sûreté de Québec, it took them quite a while to get there. The place was crazy. So what yeah, is the response? That
3: has that? happened in the United States as well, too, I know not yeah. so so the response is you know supposedly a protest that turns into looting and and riot
0: so what's the response of the what's the response of, this, of the of the of the street cop i just told the story about the person i know in the states who has a friend who's a cop whose family is telling this officer cuz he qualifies for pension now don't keep going back to work you qualified for your pension stop it hand in your uniform hand in your badge hand in your gun we want you with us. We don't want you in 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 additional danger. Is this is the is the thin blue line going to become thinner because cops are going to say, "I don't need this"?
3: Uh, generally speaking, and again, I want to stress that I think that uh, the situation in the United States is significantly, of course, worse than what it is in Canada. Of course, number one, number two, uh, no, most police officers, certainly that I still uh, deal with. Uh, got into this uh, profession for a, a particular reason and a belief about uh, the, uh, the value in the work that they actually do. I want to put one little caveat on that, though, Roy. I think the most uh, uh, difficult part of this and the biggest challenge and therefore threat is when police look to their organizations for support yeah. and they find themselves thrown under the bus.
0: Well, this is something I'm going to talk about tomorrow because I have joining me. And it's exclusive to this program, a 20-year-plus police veteran and the same force, major metropolitan force in this country, who's going to talk about the bullying, the abuse, and what happened when this police officer, woman police officer, went and asked for help. So she's going to tell the story here on this program exclusively tomorrow. Well, if it
3: happens to be uh, the RCMP, uh, it exemplifies the reason of why it's a good idea to have independent employee representation because it helps officers who are doing the right thing
0: stick up to management that's not. It's not the RCMP. I've talked to the RCMP many, many times on this program, including Toya Montague just last Sunday. So, Scotty, hold on. We're going to come back with Scott Newark on the Roy Green Show on the Corus Radio Network, former executive director of the Canadian Police Association. That's the union for cops in Canada, the street cops. And uh, former crown attorney in Alberta, also security advisor uh, to the federal and the Ontario governments on terrorism after 9-11. And he did a lot of work as well in... uh, in Washington, D.C. on uh, the terrorism issues. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. As far as police are concerned, uh, Jones Vox, you can email uh, to Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. Follow me on Twitter, at The Roy Green Show on Twitter, Jones Vox, uh, straight out of L.A. Hug the police, hugging cops at a police tribute run through Paramount Studios back lot. That's on YouTube, but here's um, here's on... uh, a tweet from Terry Rooser. I think I'm hope I'm pronouncing your last name correctly, Terry. Who so says a retired nurse? It's, uh, the Roy Green at the Roy Green Show. Your guest was exactly correct. My husband is a 43 year veteran. My son is still on the street. I fear for him. All right. And uh, from Mary. Here's Mary uh, email from Mary to uh, Roy at RoyGreenShow.com. dot com. Yes, we are counting the days to get two of our family, who are great officers, to get out. Even courts are against them, and they have no support. Who would join? Remember, cops are ordered to protect all those marching against them. Scott Newark is with me, former Crown Crown Attorney in Alberta and um, former Executive Director of the Canadian Police Association. John is uh, in—I don't know where you are, John. Where are you?
1: Yeah, uh, can you hear me right?
0: Yes, sir, I can.
1: Uh, One of my questions, I'm 63 years old and I've...
0: uh, Oh, shoot, John, no pun intended. I have 30 seconds. The time has gone against us. What's the question? Real quick. Uh,
2: I guess, what's
0: the percentage of officers pulling out their guns uh, today in relation to how many times they were pulling out their guns 20, 30 years ago? Good question. Uh, Scotty, really quick, um, it's, what's it's the answer there? Good
3: question, sir. I don't know the specific answer, but it's exactly that kind of analysis that needs to be done, including as well, however, what the nature of the people that they're dealing with. Because as, I, as you may know, okay, in today's world, almost everything by default falls to the police. So you look at how many of these cases that have a mental health history, okay, and the mental health system hasn't dealt with them, it ends up being the cops that have to deal with them. But that's exactly the kind of question we should be asking.
0: Yeah, and uh, do today's cops have different issues, different problems than the police of 30 or 40 years ago? Scott, thank you for the time, as always.
1: All right, Roy. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on
4: AM 900 CHML.
0: Last Sunday... You heard on this program, Matoya Montague, civilian employee of the RCMP. She's been on the show before. She is suing the RCMP in a personal lawsuit for aberrant behavior directed her way. And she's told us that they're extending the the case and she's almost bankrupt. She's going to run out of money. Also with us, Leanne Tessier, firefighter in Halifax. We talked about how she was bullied and how she was badly treated and by the uh, police by the uh, firefighters, some of them, not all of them, some of them. And we also had Toronto firefighter Jamie Wilson with us. and um, Jamie Wilson talked about sexual and other harassment. Spoke about being punched by a male firefighter, and she stated that her union, her association, didn't nearly well enough represent her in a timely and fair manner. So I heard from uh, Frank Ramagnano, who's the president of the uh, Toronto Firefighters Association, and um, he he got in touch with me, and I I wanted you to be on the air, Frank. You called you called last Sunday, and we didn't have the time to get you on, but I wanted you to get on. And, and thank you for, for coming on the program, because it doesn't happen that often. Um, and, and you're not, as I understand it, you're not interested in challenging Firefighter Wilson. You want to explain what the association did for her, correct?
4: Correct. And thank you for having me on, Roy. We're still representing Firefighter Wilson, so I can't really get into her, um, her case, because we do have an act of grievance. But I do want to address the fact that she said that we were not quick to represent her.
0: So you sent me an email, and you were quite detailed in, in, in what the association is doing. Are these things you can't talk about?
4: These things I can, yes.
0: You can talk about the ones, the things that you, that you emailed. Yes. What I want to do, Frank, is I want to play a few clips just for the people who weren't listening last Sunday so they have an idea— of what said, what was said. I want to play a few clips by firefighter Wilson. All right. Sure. So we're going to begin. I'll ask our, um, I'll ask our, uh, our, our studio to play clip number one. Hold on a second, though. Don't, don't, don't fire it off just yet. Um, and and I started by uh, by asking the uh, firefighter, by asking uh, Jamie Wilson about what her situation is, whether she's in court or going to court. Have a listen. Are you in court now, Jamie, or are you going to court?
5: Um, I have a Ontario human rights application that's on hold right now because the Toronto Firefighters Union have filed a grievance, but there's been no action on that grievance for the past uh, eight months.
0: Okay, now, the union has not been on your side.
5: Um, I mean, they've I've been in contact with them, but it's been over three years now, and I don't feel like anything's really moving forward.
0: All right. So there's clip number one. Here's the next clip. When I when I asked Jamie Wilson to go back to the beginning, play it, please. But let's go back to the beginning. You did this job because you loved it.
5: Yes. Yes. And you were good at it. I loved the job, and I I am good at it. And it takes an incredibly strong woman to do this job. And I've never met a princess, as you mentioned earlier. Um, but as uh, McLean's wrote about um, Atoya, they they broke me just like they broke her. I mean, you can't put out with years and years of abuse without it affecting you. And I kept pushing through and pushing through because I did love the job and I thought I could do it, but it was my nervous system that broke down after being assaulted by one member um, over a -a two-and-a-half-month period.
0: He punched you in the face.
5: Um, he, he uh, He started out like that, like punching me near my face but just stopping short, and then he started pushing, kicking, yanking, and punching me. And he was charged by Toronto police, and there was an investigation. Um, Fortunately, he wasn't convicted, but as we know, there's a very low conviction rate with this type of thing. And the detective did tell me that the firefighters that did witness some of this abuse um, colluded with him and changed their story.
0: All right, then I asked Jamie Wilson about some of the other things that happened to her. Here's what she said. What other things happened to you, Jamie?
5: Um, it pretty much started from the beginning. I, I was a, a recruit and a training officer, was um, making sexualized comments, and I was just, you know, brushing them off. I mean, I was on probation until it got to the point where he pinned me up against a counter and shoved his groin in my bum, and he started whispering in my ear, and I was just terrified. Like, I, I knew it would be a he said, she said, because there were no witnesses, and it just, progressed uh, into my first hall. My captain would scare me. Um, at one fire scene, he told the driver to drive, and he left me behind. I had to walk over a kilometer with all my gear. Um, I, I was stalked in the fire hall. He would spy on me when I was sleeping. And it was, it was scary. And I was moved. And then at that hall, my personal protective gear was tampered with, and my captain was bullying me. Um, when your
0: personal protective gear is, is tampered with, that's the equipment that keeps you alive, right?
5: That's right. Yeah, and my, my helmet had been tampered with, and I actually didn't complain about it. I accused somebody, and that person called the union, and they did an investigation. Do you,
0: you ever ask why? I mean,
5: t- you know. Well, I was the only woman at that fire hall. Of, there was 24 men in total. And, uh,
0: did anybody I, stand up for you?
5: No, no. I mean, I was already being called a slut at work and being told I was lucky to be there and just keep your mouth shut. So, yeah, they did. No one stood up for me, and they never found out who actually did it. I'm
0: going to play one more clip, and then we're going to talk to Frank Remaniano, the president of the association. Uh, and, and I asked here about the association that is there for the firefighters. Listen. Jamie, there is a professional... Association, a union. We've we've talked about um, with with the RCMP. We talked, we mentioned the union to you and and to Leanne. What function did your your association perform for you?
5: Well, I think the problem is, is they don't understand violence against women. Um, they just want to sweep it under the rug, and it's all white males. So that's a problem right there. We need more diversity. Um, so I felt like I needed. Support, because a grievance wasn't been filed, hasn't been filed, so I hired my own lawyer, and yes, it's been over forty thousand dollars trying to fight this. And if my human rights application does get heard, again, I will have to pay to fight that out of my own pocket, but I'm willing to do that because that's how strongly I feel that you know it's very important to have zero tolerance in the workplace for violence. Um, they need to punish these people that are committing these crimes. We need separate sleeping areas and washrooms and all fire halls. We need cameras. I mean, if there was a camera, I would have proof and I wouldn't have had to been, have been investigated and be, be further traumatized. And we need bystanders. I mean, these are first responders that wouldn't even help one of their own that was a victim of violence. The detective called it domestic violence in a fire hall. And then we need round table small groups with firefighters. So they can hear, you know, how these actions are impacting victims and make that connection.
0: All right. So there are the clips that I wanted you to hear from Jamie Wilson. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll talk to Frank Ramagnano, president of the Firefighters Association, and we'll hear Mr. Ramagnano's uh, explanation of what the association is doing, has done and is doing for Jamie Wilson and whether the association takes seriously her claims of what you heard sexual um, abuse, including having one individual um, walk up behind her and push his genitals um, into her back. Stay with us. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Frank Ramagnano is my guest, president of the Toronto Professional Firefighters Association. Frank uh, you heard what, uh, I played the clips from Jamie Wilson, the ones I think our listeners needed to hear. Now please tell us what the association uh, has done and is doing and and your view as an association of what uh, Firefighter Wilson says happened to her. It's pretty serious stuff.
4: It's very serious stuff. I'd like to first start off by saying the association will not tolerate, ignore, or condone discrimination or harassment. We're committed to promoting respectful conduct, tolerance, And diversity at all times we value all our members no matter male female or the color of their skin in regards to some of the clips that you played I have to address a few of them right off the start in regards to the police the police did investigate her allegations but there were no charges Uh, initially they go through the proper procedure they lay the charges once they finish their investigation they did not proceed There were no charges laid there was no trial in regards to the uh, equipment tampering our investigation has shown that a junior firefighter sticker was placed on the helmet so I think it's a little um, disingenuous when you say that the equipment was tampered that it would uh, uh, interfere with your health and safety when we're looking at a sticker that is something that's really common to males and females we have the junior stickers that we hand out to kids every once in a while, they'll get on a helmet or other piece of equipment. That's what took place here. In regards to the history and what's taken place, in August of 2013, Firefighter Wilson contacted us with allegations of harassment. We immediately contacted the city. Within two days, the city had hired an external investigating firm to look into all the accusations. So the city um, listens to what we tell them, and they proceed with investigating it. So you can't file a grievance yet because we don't know what they're going to do. While they're investigating, over 35 witnesses are called. So you can imagine this takes a lot of time. We are uh, helping Firefighter Wilson. We're at all the um, interviews, uh, dates that she could not make interviews. We had them rescheduled, and we're working on her behalf.
0: Let me ask you a question, Uh, just a quick question here. Uh, She sent me an an email, and she wrote... um, Let me see. Um, I was terrified to go to work June 2013 due to the violence and cyberbullying I was experiencing. I reported the assaults to union reps in August of 2013. They did not want me to report the assaults to police. The lawyer that was present that day, however, suggested that I could go to the police. I did so, and criminal assault charges were laid against the male firefighter. By Toronto Police 52 Division. During these investigations, it feels like no one was on my side. The un- Here, This is what I want you to respond to. Sure. The union told me that my two previous harassment investigations were apparently, quote, informal. How can a sexual assault investigation ever be considered informal? I've been told that this current investigation is formal. I continually asked for a union rep to specific documents to help me prove my case, but I was repeatedly rebuffed. The same union rep lied to me and about me and misconstrued my words in 2016. I'm still waiting on the union for an arbitration date. I'd like to set the record straight.
4: Well, right now, when you're reading me, this is the first time I've ever heard of these accusations from Firefighter Wilson. So if this was her complaint, I being the president of the association would have a a record of this. Our lawyer would have a record of this. There are different types of investigations. Mm -hmm. So yes, a sticker on the helmet would probably be an informal hearing. Uh, not something that is uh, uh, harassment at the highest level. As far as the other uh, incident, the first I hear of a complaint in regards to how anything was handled is you reading me that email.
0: Did you have any personal relationship? I mean, just a friendly working relationship with Firefighter Wilson. Did she talk to you? You talked to her?
4: I became uh, the union president about a year and a half ago. Right. Uh, Firefighter Wilson was not on my shift. I, the first time I actually uh, met her, was at her uh, mediation, which I will go over. Um, so, no, I don't have any uh, um, personal history with Firefighter Wilson.
0: Okay, Frank, we'll, well, we have a minute left here, and we'll talk again, I'm sure. But take that minute, please, and explain to us what needs to be said from your perspective.
4: To finish off, we had uh, Firefighter Wilson filed a human rights uh, complaint with Ontario, the Human Rights Tribunal of Ontario. Uh, during that time, we held a mediation in which uh, we, uh, we had our lawyer there helping her out, and we mediated an agreement. It wasn't to Jamie Wilson's satisfaction. Uh, consequently, once that was over, uh, she had asked us to file a grievance. We filed the grievance because if you file a grievance before you go through the uh, Human Rights Tribunal, uh the grievance uh, takes precedence, so we w- we followed her wishes we went with first a mediation there during the uh, grievance process we had another mediation okay. in which we brought in one of the top arbitrators uh, in ontario we had a Frank, resolution
0: i, I, I literally that have
4: recommended.
0: i literally have 20 seconds here so the situation is pers- is proceeding as it should by the numbers from your perspective right
4: from our perspective, it is going right now. Okay. She's off on WSIB. Right. We've been able to get her LTD okay. benefits. Uh,
0: WSIB. Frank benefits. will, Frank will talk. It, we will proceed, We'll talk uh, again. With the second phase. The satellite's going to cut us off. Okay. We'll talk again. Thank you, Frank. Thank you for the time. All right. Bye bye. The Roy Green Show weekends from two to five on AM nine hundred CHML.